If you would, turn with me as we dive back into James. We are going to be in James chapter 1 once again as we took a timely break last week and dove into the the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is going to come up again today. And there's something about the Sermon on the Mount that is, has been uh, applicable to much of what we've been learning. So we're going to pick up this morning where we left off. We left off, if you remember, in, in verse 12. So this morning, we're going to read verses 12 through 18, and we're going to see that our passage this morning has two distinct sides, and we're going to divide our passage where James divides the passage in verse 16, this pivot point, and we're going to spend one week on 13 through 16, and then next week we will pick back up in 16 and finish out our text. So this morning, if you would stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to read verses 12 through 18 this morning. Our text says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought, uh, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. This ends the reading of God's word this morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Pray with me this morning over our text. Father God, as we approach this topic of temptation, I pray that you would ingrain in us a desire for purity, a desire to be Christ-like. Your word teaches us that we are to guide our ways by your word, that we are to dive in and that we are to apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to glean from our passage this morning what you would have us to know. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us to learn. We love you and we're grateful. Amen. Over the past few weeks, we have found that James has been focusing on trials telling us that they are guaranteed in this life, telling us and challenging us that we are to consider them as occasions for joy. Two weeks ago, we saw that he pronounces a blessing on those who remain, and, uh, remain steadfast or persevere through trials. However, in our text this morning, we're going to find that James has a subtle shift and to understand where he is leading us to, we must understand this shift in his language. We must understand and recognize the differences between trials and temptations. In verse 13, James is no longer writing and telling us about outward events in our lives that come to test us. But he is talking about inward, inward enticements to sin. 
where trials grant us opportunities to sin in this life, temptations come to seduce us to sin, to call us away into sin. James is telling us that the same circumstances, which are trials in our life, that on one hand gives us opportunities to move forward in Christ's likeness, on the other hand, tempt us to go back. Up to this point in chapter one this morning, he has been teaching us that trials are a blessing, telling us that they lead us to maturity and to eternal life. But he reminds us in our passage this morning that this process is not automatic, that the results will vary depending on our perspective and on our response. The right response will lead us to spiritual growth, righteousness, and wisdom. The wrong response we will find leads to death and to sin. This morning, I want us to examine what James has to say for us underneath three headings. Temptation is certain, we will find. Temptation is personal. Then finally, temptation is dangerous. I want to start this morning by diving in where James dives in. Temptation is certain. I often joke that I am a person with much worthless knowledge. I'm the king of worthless knowledge. I know a lot about, or a little about a lot of different topics. I'm naturally a curious person, so I study all sorts of different topics. Brianna has said that I am a collector of hobbies. That's what I, I don't stay with a hobby very long. I collect them. But I was thinking this week, what is the difference between useful knowledge and useless knowledge? And it all comes down, if you think about it, to that one word, the use of the knowledge. I'm sure that every teacher has been asked more times than they can count, when am I going to use this? And I think back over my time in school, and I see that there was a lot of wasted learning. I took three years of Spanish, one of them in college, and I absolutely hated it. I now know very little about it. I don't remember much of it. I took physics classes that I never used. Then I, of course, learned to play the recorder. I'm sure all of us learned to play the recorder. And who came up with that? But you see, James is different this morning. What he is leading us to, this knowledge that he's calling us to is different because he says we will use it. In fact, in verse 13, we find he starts out by saying, let no one say when he is tempted. As a church, we believe in the verbal inspiration of scripture. That's a big word. But what that means is that God gave us this book and that he inspired it. And when we read it, it is as if God is speaking to us. That means also that he didn't just inspire the thoughts that we find in the book, but the actual words that are used in the original languages. What that means to you is that we care about the words. We care what words were used in our Bible. And in our text this morning, we find that that is critically important. It is important what words James chose to use this morning. We see that he says when. He says when he is tempted. James has left us no doubt in the last few verses, that trials will come in this life. Now, he is saying, we can also count on temptation. It is not a matter of if it is coming in your life. It is a matter of when. James has 
taught us that this is the case. We've seen examples, examples of the poor man and the rich man in verses 9 and 10. The poor being tempted to question God's goodness. The poor man asked, does God love me? Does he really care about my circumstances? On the other hand, the rich man begins to question, do I even need God? He is tempted to forget God altogether. And we have experienced this in our own life. We are tempted often to misuse God's bountiful blessings on our lives. And then at other times, we are seduced into questioning God's divine kindness towards us. So we see that we are going to be tempted. James tells us that temptation will be our constant companion in this life. From cradle to grave, from beginning to end. So with that said, we must not be surprised by it. We must always stand ready to face temptation. We must stay alert. There's nothing more dangerous that you can do than to shift your mind into neutral, than to begin to coast. You never coast towards righteousness. It it takes a battle to go towards Christ-likeness. But we must not only stay alert, It is critical that we understand what we are up against. We must understand who is our foe in this life. James takes up this task and the rest of our passage. This is what he addresses. He does it by telling us that temptation is personal. We, by nature, do not like taking responsibility for our actions. It is built into us to pass the buck Ever since the very beginning, we have we've shifted blame for our sins onto others and uh, other circumstances and other people. Ever since uh, Adam and Eve, if you remember back to what they said when they when God asked them, "Why did you eat of this fruit?" What did they do? Adam would blame God, ultimately saying, "The woman that you gave me is the one who gave me the fruit." Eve, in turn, she blames the devil. And something that I've quickly learned as a parent is that you do not have to teach your kids this. Ruth Ann's favorite word, I believe, is but. Yes, I did it, but. I did it, but I was trying to fill in the blank. She comes up with all sorts of excuses. I did it, but he did it too. I did it, but it is not my fault. But this is not only our children's problems. It is our problem as well. We are like them. We often make effort to remove our responsibility for our sins. We blame others. We blame our upbringing. We blame family. We blame friends. We blame the government. We, like Adam, at times even try to blame God. But James heads us off in this this morning. In verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, And he himself tempts no one. The idea that James is getting at in verse 13 is let no one say to himself. He is warning us to stop rationalizing our sins to ourselves. And we are good at that. We do that often. In fact, if you fail to address your sin immediately, you can easily find yourself starting to justify them. It's not that bad. At least I'm not doing this or that. This is one of the little sins, right? James says we should be careful, and we should be especially careful not to ever try to lay the blame at God's feet. He says, 
We are not to look at God and blame him. And he gives us two reasons, a a two-part argument that explains to us why that is the case, why we cannot blame God for temptation. He first says that God himself cannot be tempted by evil. In this, he is saying that God's nature is of a sort that is so untainted by evil that he will never tempt us. He is holy to the, the point that it is impossible for him to be tempted. Everything in him resists sin, and sin is entirely and, and inherently foreign to who he is. From this truth that God is holy flows the second part of his argument. He said, God himself tempts no one. James is arguing because God is perfectly sinless. It is impossible for him ever to desire to tempt us or to harm us. He never tests us to the point where we are trapped by sin. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation, Paul says, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your abilities but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So James clearly lays out for us that God is never, never the cause of temptation. But he's also teaching us something else. He's applying or implying something else in our text this morning. James is implying that the ability to tempt and be tempted is rooted in the evil capacity within the person, within, because God is perfect. He's perfectly holy. So he cannot be the cause of temptation. This leads us though into our next verse. In it, James says, where the power of temptation actually lies. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. The temptation we face, James is telling us, flows from us, from our own desires. The problem is not the temptation, the tempter without, but the traitor within. No matter where you go, you are going to be with yourself. There's no getting away from this temptation. You can run as far as you want to run, but there you will be. This is why temptation is certain. Because it comes from our own sinful capacity that is within our hearts. Paul does a great job at explaining this. He lays out for us in Ephesians 2 the picture of humanity before they place their faith in Christ. He says in the beginning of Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, lost people pursue their own desires. They pursue the desires of their flesh, the desires of their body, the desires of their mind. But in Romans, Paul is also clear That when we are born again, when we come to Christ in repentance and we are made new, we are not completely free from this corrupt nature that lives within us. In Romans 7, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. See, Paul is saying that he is still tempted, that he still falls into these sins that he doesn't really want to do, but he is drugged away. He is enticed. Temptation flows from who we are. Even though we are made new creations in, when we come to Christ in repentance, in repentance, our fleshly desires still tend to lean towards sin. You see, every sin is an inside job. Temptation cannot be laid at the feet of God. It cannot be ascribed to others, our environment, or our situation. They ultimately come from our hearts, our own desires. That is why Timothy is told by Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And if you read Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, you will see he lists a long list of sins. He says, flee these things and pursue. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Then he will tell Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You see, like Timothy, we too must fight. We must fight these desires. We must flee from sin and pursue righteousness. We must take hold of eternal life with both hands, and we must make the good confession. In order to do this, we must know what we are up against. We must know this enemy. And James tells us that these desires and what they do is they, they lure and they entice. The Greek word for both of these have subtle differences. The Greek word that is translated lure in our scripture means to forcefully drag away. It has the picture of a fishing lure that a fish will bite and the fisherman drags him out of the water and he is slain. While the word enticed has a more subtle meaning. It means the quiet, seductive, alluring temptation. It has that sense to it. And I do not believe that this is a coincidence that James chose these two words because we experience both of these, do we not? There are times when as Christians, we are very particularly aware of the desires that, in, that are causing us to be tempted. We have experienced these moments where we find ourselves especially captivated by a temptation. Those times when desires rush on us with such intensity that we are overwhelmed by them. We're driving in the car and somebody cuts us off and we fly off the handle. You make a mistake and it is found out and there's a deep desire to lie in order to get out of trouble. You are talking to a friend and you say more than you should, you begin to gossip about someone else. All these things can happen so quickly. They can come upon you and rush upon you, and you find yourself falling into temptation. But then there are other times where temptation is not so easily noticed. It slides in. In many ways, these are the temptations that are even more dangerous to us spiritually. Desires come, and we fail to notice it until it's too late, until we've fallen into temptation, until we've sinned. The item that we desire, that we cannot afford, 
that we keep going back to and looking at online, and then we just whip out the credit card and go into debt. A coworker that pays us attention, that turns into lust, filling our lives with those things that are good, things like work, family, sports, that keeps us so busy that we neglect what is best, scripture, prayer, and fellowship. All these things, all these things can slip up on you so quickly. Very few people wake up and say, today is the day that I want to get in a mountain of debt. Very few people wake up and say, all of a sudden, today is the day that I want to cheat on my spouse. Very few people wake up and say, I want my life to be so busy that I neglect my Christian duties. But all too many of us find ourselves in these positions or some similar to them because we are enticed by our own desires into sin. One commentator I read this week said this, many sinful actions begin with casual thoughts, but dwelling on them turns minor temptation into major transgression, major sin. Ralph Waldo Emerson would put it this way. He was a famous writer. He would say, sow a thought and you will reap an action. Sow an action and you will reap a habit. Sow a habit and you will reap a character. Sow a character and you will reap a destiny. All too often, great sin starts with seemingly innocent desires. It is because of this that Paul tells us in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world that's trying to drag you away, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. Why did this matter to these men? Why did this matter to Paul? Why does it matter to James? Why are they so passionate about writing about temptation? It is because they both know that temptation is dangerous. We see it in our last verse this morning, in verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to death. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth, or brings forth death. Throughout the Bible, we see this coupling, this coupling of sin and death. In Scripture, they are tied in a few different ways. It tells us, the Scriptures tells us, that sin is deadly in this life. We see examples over and over again where there are friendships that are broken because of sin. When we sin against one another, there is a death that moves into that relationship, a death that is felt. We have inflicted this on others, and we have experienced it ourselves. Where there is once closeness, all of a sudden the friendship slips away. Where we could easily get along with someone, now there is tension in the air. Sin has entered into the relationship and sin has brought death. Another way the Bible speaks about sin and death is physical death. Paul writes, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Sin entered this world through, or death entered the world through sin. And he says, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Sin is the reason this body wears out. Sin is the reason why Stuart has to have surgery, why Darn Alley couldn't be here this morning. Sin is the reason for sicknesses. Sin is the reason for death and decay. 
But these elements of the relationship between sin and death is not really what James is getting at this morning. He is using this, this relationship in a much deeper, much more weighty way. Up to this point, we have found that James has laid out for us two different progressions. He says in verses 2 through uh, 4, we see the progression of testing, perseverance, and maturity. And then two weeks ago in verse 12, we saw testing, perseverance, and eternal life. And what both of these patterns point to is the end of your life. What the end of your life will be if in testing you persevere. They point to eternity. And in verse 15, he is introducing for us the reverse replica. He is saying it is a progression. Desire leads to sin, and sin will lead to eternal death. It is in this verse that we see just how dangerous this sin and temptation can be. It can lead you to eternal death. And I beg that you would listen to me this morning. This is the important part. Full-grown sin leads to death. Practicing sin will lead you to hell, eternal death. I claimed Christianity. I claimed faith in Christ at five years old. And I was baptized that same year. But once I got older, I began to struggle with the assurance of my salvation. I would pray asking God to save me over and over and over again because I just wanted some assurance. During my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, I fell into a pattern of sin. And this would intensify this spiritual restlessness in my life. It would be my sophomore year of college that things would begin to change. I heard a pastor preach on the Sermon on the Mount. We keep going back to it. Matthew 7, 15 through 27. It was the scariest, most eye-opening sermon I had ever heard. It rocked me. He spent the majority of the time in this sermon on the scariest verses I've ever read in Scripture. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. In it, this is Jesus speaking. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out many demons in your name? Did we not do many great works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The pastor would go on to point out that those who say, Lord, Lord, had a belief. They believed in their hearts that they were believers and that they would go to heaven. They even did many great works in the name of Jesus. But in the end, Jesus said that they were workers of lawlessness. They claimed the right belief, but that belief did not save them. And we will look in chapter 2 of James where James writes that there is a belief that will not save you. Even the demons believe, but their destination is hell. This shook me to the core. I was wondering, would I be that one that would say, Lord, Lord, and here, depart from me. I never knew you. I couldn't remember. I can't remember how I got there, but somehow I got to the book of First John. And ever since I was led to that book, that book has become very precious to me. It's my favorite book of the Bible. Because you see, I was a 20-year-old kid 
who did not know where he would spend eternity. And I was miserable because of it. But I found 1 John 5, 13, and it brought me hope. It was the light at the end of the tunnel. In it, John says, I am writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And that was music to my ears. That's what I wanted. That's what I desired. I needed to know that I had eternal life. You know what I found when I dug into his book? I didn't find what I had been taught for so many years at church. He did not ask, have you ever walked an aisle? He did not ask, have you prayed a prayer? He didn't ask, has someone told you that you are saved? Instead, what you find in 1 John is he asks, have you been radically changed by the gospel? Has God come into your life and, and changed your life? We find verses like 1 John 3, 9 through 10. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And those verses mean exactly what they sound like they mean. It means that those who belong to God, God changes in such a way that they cannot make a practice of sinning. He's not saying that we never sin. In fact, in 1 John 1.8, he says, if anyone says they have no sin, they deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. That is not what he is getting at. But he is pointing out that we who believe, we who belong to God will never be able to be called a worker of lawlessness that James, or John, or Jesus says in Matthew 7. The implication is the same for John and James this morning. Those who practice sin, as James puts it, those who allows sin to fully grow in their lives are destined to eternal death. That is the key. It is the key of practicing sin. It is dangerous. So I want to end this morning pointing out that we are to fight we are fight the fight of faith. We will not be perfect. We will not be complete until we get to heaven. But our lives is not to be made up of sin. We are to, as Paul says, to flee sin and confess it and to pursue righteousness. Closing with verse 16, I want you to hear, hear James. He was the pastor of many of these people. Hear his pastoral heart for his spiritual children. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And I cry out with James this morning. Do not be deceived. God is perfectly sinless. He will not tempt you. He does not tempt you. Do not be deceived. Temptation comes from your own heart and your own desires. Do not be deceived. Sin is deadly. Brother and sister in Christ, we live in a life, we live in a, a land, in a life that is full of opportunities for temptation. In times like these, in times of war, there is easy, it is easy to be tempted to fear, tempted to be anxious, tempted to question the goodness of God. In a land of plenty like our own, it is easy to be tempted to greed, gluttony, tempted to fill our schedule so full that we forget God. Whatever sin you are flirting with this morning, Whatever lie you are buying into, the call is to run away. Do not play games. 
Do not be deceived. They will kill you. Listen to Jesus. Back on the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And Jesus obviously is not advocating for us to start cutting off hands because we know that is not the source of our temptation. But what he is telling us to do is that we, this is not to be taken lightly. This is not a game. Eternity in hell is at stake. But you see, we cannot get away from our desires, from these temptations. So we must take it seriously. We must be willing to do what it takes. The Bible declares, God's word declares in Psalms 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. My question is, do you guard your life according to God's word? This is not a recommendation. This is a necessity. This is a heavy sermon. And there may be those who are sitting here saying, but I am already falling into my desires. I'm already falling into temptation. What hope is there for me? And I point you back to 1 John, my favorite book, chapter two. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. And you say, well, that's not me. I'm already sinning. He doesn't stop. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. He is the payment of all of our sins, and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. Therefore, John can write what he does in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So no matter where you're at this morning, that is the call. Turn to the one who stands ready to forgive you and to cleanse you. We're going to take a moment here in a second to respond. And I want us to do that, just that. Turn to him. No matter where you are in this process, in this Christian life, turn to the one who stands ready to heal you. Let's pray. Father God, you are good and you do good. You are gracious to us. Lord, I pray that you would apply this passage the way you would have it applied. Lord, there is some danger here. I pray against any error in me that I made it sound like we work for salvation because we do not. It is Christ's work in his alone. And we praise you for that because we fail and we fall and we fall into temptation. And I thank you for verses like 1 John 2, 1 and 2, that we have an advocate. Lord, I need an advocate in my life. I need an advocate to stand before you and say, that one is mine. I died for that one. I pray, Lord, that that would be everybody's story here, that they would be so radically transformed by the gospel that their life would never, ever look the same. That yes, we do sin, but when we do, we run and we confess that we run and we run into the one, into the arms of the one who will cleanse us of our sins. Lord, I pray that you would give us all that desire that we would live a holy and pure life. Lord, we love you and we look to you even in this moment.
In your son's name we pray, amen.